Hi, We the People friends. Every week I ask you to rate, review, and subscribe to the show. Here's why that's important. Positive ratings help new listeners find us and decide to tune in, and then we can spread constitutional light and inspire others to educate themselves about the Constitution. So if you're enjoying the show, please search for We the People on Apple Podcasts on your iPhone or iPad or Mac or wherever you're listening. Scroll down and click write a review and leave a message to let us know that you're enjoying We the People. We would really appreciate it. Thanks so much, and on to the show. I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is a nonpartisan nonprofit chartered by Congress to increase awareness and understanding of the Constitution among the American people. This week marks the 100th anniversary of the ratification of the 19th Amendment. The National Constitution Center opened our amazing new exhibit, The 19th Amendment, How Women Won the Vote. And at the Constitution Center and online, you'll find interactives that show early drafts of the 19th Amendment. You can hear the debates that took place in Congress and the states, and you can see the progress of ratification state by state. In celebration of the exhibit and the 100th anniversary of the 19th Amendment, today's special episode explores the history and purposes of the 19th Amendment, uh, from its roots in the Civil War era through the women's suffrage movement and its implications today. I'm so honored to be joined by two of America's leading experts on the 19th Amendment, both of whom advised the Constitution Center's new exhibit. Reva Siegel is the Nicholas D. B. Katzenbach Professor of Law at Yale Law School. Her writing draws on legal history to explore questions of law and inequality. She's the author of The 19th Amendment and the Democratization of the Family, and of She the People, The 19th Amendment, Sex Equality, Federalism, and the Family, which we consulted in creating the National Constitution Center's new 19th Amendment Drafting Table Interactive. She also served as an advisor to our exhibit by editing drafts of the text and providing invaluable feedback. Reva, it is such an honor to have you. Thank you for your help with the exhibit, and welcome to We the People. It's great to be here, Jeff. And Laura Free is Associate Professor of History at Hobart and William Smith Colleges, where she studies gender, race, voting rights, and politics. She is the author of the book Suffrage Reconstructed, Gender, Race, and Voting Rights in the Civil War Era, and host of Amended, a new podcast about the struggle for equal voting rights. Dr. Free is an advisor to the National Constitution Center's new exhibit as well, and she shared her invaluable expertise and reviewed the 19th Amendment drafting table as well as the other digital interactives. Laura, thank you so much for your amazing help, and great to have you on the show. Thanks, Jeff. It's great to be here with you and Reva. Let's begin just after the Civil War. Uh, the 13th Amendment has been passed, abolishing slavery. And in the 14th Amendment, for the first time, the word male is inserted into the Constitution. Laura, tell us why the word male was inserted in the Constitution and what sorts of coalitions that fateful decision provoked. 
Yeah, so to understand that, we have to go back a little bit toward the 13th Amendment, where which abolished slavery, um, and that created a particular problem in terms of congressional representation. So the original Constitution said that states could have representation in Congress based on their full populations, but enslaved populations were only counted as three-fifths toward representation. So, so with the 13th Amendment, that abolishes is all slavery everywhere, right? So um, the states are now faced with the notion that they could have full representation based on their populations. So people in Congress, immediately at the end of the Civil War, are sitting there looking at this representation problem, and, and they think, oh no, the South could lose the Civil War and come back into Congress and actually gain representation, at the same time, there's a large coalition of black activists who are advocating for black men's right to the ballot, to vote. And so um, Republicans in Congress start putting these two things together and thinking maybe we can make a change that will enable us to achieve a lot of our political goals. So they write the second section of the 14th Amendment, which they spend a lot of time talking and drafting. And they, they go back and forth on the language, but they wind up saying that states can have representation based on their full population so long as they don't deny any adult male citizens the right to vote. And they use that term male citizens three different times in this very complicated language. What they're trying to do is say to southern states, you don't get to have representation based on the formerly enslaved population unless you give them political power. But when they use this word male, it perked up the attention of women's rights activists. They had been working alongside Republicans and abolitionists to get the 13th Amendment passed. They felt that they had a really tight coalition with Republicans. They had been responsible for sending thousands of petitions to Congress to support the 13th Amendment. So I think they were kind of expecting a political quid pro quo, right? That after the Civil War, they had thrown their support to Republicans, now Republicans would support women's right to vote, all women's right to vote. This word male was a strong signal to them that that just wasn't going to happen. Reva, your invaluable work has focused on the way that the arguments for women's suffrage intersected with the arguments for African-American suffrage. Tell us how, as the 14th and 15th Amendments were being debated, uh, women's suffrage advocates were drawing on and also differing from the arguments for African-American suffrage? Well, what's really remarkable about this early period is that the advocates for suffrage, um, we know that, as Laura was telling us, Stanton and Anthony and others helped run the petition drive for the 13th Amendment. Um, they stepped forward under the banner of an equal rights for all ethic. And they were advocating universal suffrage. So they were putting the causes together under a banner. They even used the phrase human rights. So it was a, a notion of universal suffrage, which was <clears throat> really forward-looking. In fact, it was dramatic and transformative and a new idea. Today, we think of democracy as one person, one vote. But people need to appreciate that at the founding, um, this was not the understanding of the framers. At the founding, it was really only a minority of citizens who had the vote. 
um, your wonderful exhibitions <clears throat> at the National Constitution Center have actually shown the expansion of the franchise over time. And what the advocates for women's suffrage were doing, uh, along with the abolitionists and the anti-racists or anti-slavery activists, what they were doing was putting together a new transformative understanding of democracy on the path to reconstruction, proposing that democracy would mean not that some would vote for others, but that every adult citizen who had capacity should be able to vote. So this was that moment. And there's actually a society formed during the drafting of the 14th Amendment to, to resist the plans of the Republican Party to limit the 14th Amendment in this way. And this cross-racial, cross-gender, if you will, coalition, at least briefly is advocating for this inclusive view of suffrage, universal suffrage, to shape the 14th Amendment, even though the architects in the Congress are not prepared to go that far because of their anticipated concerns about the resistance of the American people. Thank you so much for that. And thank you for calling out the new drafting table interactive, with bo which both of you helped advise. We the people listeners, I want you to go to the interactive constitution, click on the 19th amendment and go to the drafting table, which I'm looking at now. And I'm looking at an early draft for universal suffrage proposed by Representative Julian on December 8th, 1868. It says the right of suffrage in the United States shall be based upon citizenship and shall be regulated by Congress and all citizens of the United States, whether native or naturalized, shall enjoy the right equally without any distinction or discrimination, whatever, founded on race, color, or sex. Laura, tell us about that amazing brief shining moment when universal suffrage is proposed in Congress and maybe help us understand how we move to the narrower version of the uh, 19th Amendment that ultimately was adopted. Yeah, Julian was one of the one of the more radical members of Congress at the time and he was clearly picking up on the arguments that um, this coalition of suffragists and abolitionists had made. Uh, they called themselves the American Equal Rights Association and it was an organization that lasted for a few years and they made the claim that no one all citizens should have the right to vote. Um, and Julian was uh, allied with some of the people there. He was he knew them and um, had Proposed this, but most people in Congress um, were well aware that most Americans found women's voting rights at the time laughable. Um, if you read the debates, whenever anyone brings up the idea of women voting, it's usually indicated in parentheses after the person finishes speaking that there was laughter in the um, in the, the chambers itself. Um, but also, you know, supporters of um, black men's civil and political rights were very well aware that if they attempted to connect these two causes politically, it could do irreparable damage to the effort to give black men the right to vote. So um, decoupling the two was something that was a political goal of those in, in power. But they also, I think, horribly missed an amazing opportunity here where voting rights are a right of all citizens. What they do instead is, of course, the more limited language that says you can't discriminate on, on the basis of race, gender, or previous condition of servitude. That's the official language of the 15th Amendment. And the fact that they only limited it in those ways implies that there are so many other ways that it is okay to discriminate against someone for, um, in, in selecting their voting rights. 
for women suffragists, this is a terrible moment where um, white suffragists move to explicitly reject the 15th Amendment and um, the American Equal Rights Association falls apart. And in particular, Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony adopt glaringly racist language and say horribly racist things to assert that because of their whiteness and because of their white privilege, wealthy white women should have the right to vote instead of black men. Um, and they opposed the 15th Amendment openly. Um, other suffragists like Frederick Douglass, like Frances Harper, like Lucy Stone, rejected this notion and said, we have to support the 15th Amendment. Reva Laura has introduced the tensions among race and class lines within the movement. Tell us more about those tensions at the time of the proposal of the 14th and after, as well as those moments of common cause between advocates across race and class lines in the years after the ratification of the 14th and 15th Amendments. So I think what's striking in this story is that the advocates, even the advocates whom Laura rightly identifies as ultimately um, taking positions that are um, uh, race-based in ways that we find abhorrent today, um, start out as advocates passionately seeking to give the vote to all, advocates for the cause of universal suffrage, that we see the ways in which the advocates for, that Stanton and Anthony led the petition drive for the 13th Amendment, that they helped forge this society seeking universal suffrage under the 14th Amendment. So it was not that they opposed in principle giving the vote to freed slaves. To the contrary, they were seeking to accomplish this end. But what we do see is that when they hit this block, namely Republicans in Congress, we presume uh, reflecting their apprehensions of resistance to both black male suffrage and women's suffrage in the body of the American electorate resisting this demand in the name of some form of political realism and the hopes of getting reconstruction put in law. When they hit this obstacle, this um, resistance breaks out in the women's movement and a division appears. And we see Stanton and Anthony um, enraged to talking about the fact that in their view, white women um, have a claim on the vote that they see at that point in, mo in history as superior. What's striking though, and I think really important to see is, as, as Laura emphasized, is that there's actually a division in the women's movement. And there are women, many women, women and men, in the suffrage movement who stand with the cause of African-American men. And so the movement splits and the American Women's Suffrage Association is formed. And that actual branch of the women's movement by the latter part of the 19th century is even going to be the larger of the two. And there is a branch that moves only to seek change through the states. So what we have is a story here in which some women don't make common cause along lines of race, while others do. And I think it's actually striking that that kind of moment of pressure, internal movement coalition falling apart, and at least some standing fo forward on the, the ground of um, cross-racial coalition and of the importance of standing for anti-racism in American history, that that has a repeated current in the suffrage movement. But sadly, it's not always the position taken by movement leadership. I mean, that actually happens in the 1920s again, again. So it is a profound um, weakness of the movement, which reflects a deep and a dark 
um, and a shameful uh, history of the United States and of, of whites in the United States as a whole. Thank you for helping us understand that complex and important dynamic. Laura, on the Drafting Table Interactive, we see a series of drafts of the 19th Amendment being introduced in the 1870s and 80s. In 1878, Senator Sargent introduced a women's suffrage amendment, uh, which would have prohibited discrimination on account of sex in voting. In 1882, Representative White supports taking action on women's suffrage. In 1884, the Senate Committee recommends the amendment. And then we have to wait until 1914 before Senator Vardaman pushes uh, control for state control of voting. What What is going on in the 1870s and 80s? And what are the politics of the movement for uh, a women's suffrage amendment? Um, in the 1870s, a lot of that is still sort of the residual politics of Reconstruction. And um, the the what I find really interesting about the 19th Amendment is that it's proposed after Julian's proposal, um, the, all of the proposals henceforth carry the same language. And what they did was model themselves after the 15th Amendment. So instead of saying all citizens have the right to vote, regardless um, of who they are or where they're situated in the country, instead... Instead, the language is you can't deny on the basis of sex. And that's the language of the amendment that gets carried through um, until the end of the time. In, in the 1880s, in terms of the suffrage movement, there it, it's a real low point um, for the movement's activism. Um, there's a lot of activity, especially nationally, um, there's a lot of activity going on at the state level. Um, as Riva said, the American Women's Suffrage Association is very active state by state, trying to make make changes um, more locally. And um, in some places, this this starts, we start to see a shift where um, local suffrage is granted. So for example, some women are able to vote for school board in some states in the West in particular. And some states also start to give women the right to vote. Wyoming and Utah are early adopters, um, uh, ostensibly to attract women to the West at that point. Um, but um, otherwise, in terms of the national efforts, it's it, it's it's a it's a hard it's a hard sell at that point. Riva, in your article, the Nineteenth Amendment and the Democratization of the Family, you argue that the women's suffrage movement was significantly, if not predominantly, a movement for equality in the organization of family life. Tell us about the connection between votes for women and votes for family. Thanks, Jeff. So this is um, a perspective on the Votes for Women campaign that actually um, is a, a deeply important one for understanding both our history and our law, but it's one that we've actually not focused on as much as we might. So what would be the connection between votes and family? On the face of it, it doesn't seem all that obvious, and it doesn't seem all that obvious from, for example, the text of the 19th Amendment either, which says nothing about the family. So to get the connection, you need to go all the way back to the question of how it is that Americans justified denying votes to women. And as soon as you ask that question, you begin to get an answer about the nexus between the two. Um, in the founding generation, in the 18th, 19th century, um, as I had suggested earlier, there were a minority of, of persons who voted. And when asked uh, how it was that women were represented in the state, the answer would be that their husbands or their fathers voted and spoke for their interests. And that was understood as virtual representation of their interests, which is a striking concept for Americans to assert 
insofar as that had been the answer for how the colonists, lacking a vote, were represented in uh, Britain, and the colonists had not liked that much as an answer, and had in part um, mounted a revolution on the principle, you know, no taxation without representation. So the idea is to be an American, you should have uh, a vote, but they only understood that to apply to heads of household or propertied heads of household or white property heads of household. There were, in fact, dramatic and varied restrictions on the franchise in the early years of the Republic. And one of them deeply was the sex restriction. So just to sort of sum up the first ground of connection, um, the vote for women was a challenge to a family structure that assumed that women would be represented if single by their fathers and if married by their husbands. So it was severing an understanding of the family. I'll just also add that that same nexus was also the structure that was assumed to uh, take care in the earlier years of um, workers, master servant, or slaves, master slave. It's just that over the nation's history, there was reform of these elements of law, whereas the husband and wife one proved, excuse me, singularly resistant to reform. And I'll just add one more ground, and that is that it's not simply that giving women the vote would intervene in this idea of family connection that allowed men to speak for and represent women in the eyes of the law and in the eyes of politics. It was that when women explained to men and to each other why it was they needed the vote, they didn't just go to the ground of abstract principle. They pointed to the law that supposedly men made in their interests and consistently argued that the law that men had made did not adequately represent their interests. And the pages of suffrage journals and speeches are just strewn with arguments pointing to the law that men adopted as evidence that when men actually exercised virtual representation and enacted laws that claimed to be in women's actual interest, they failed at that task. And probably the core example that was put in evidence was the family, so that the movement's energies were full of proposals for changing law governing family life. Thank you for helping us understand that central idea at the core of the movement. Laura, when I went through the 19th Amendment exhibit at the National Constitution Center, our exhibit developer, Elena Popchak, emphasized three broad forces that brought the 19th Amendment to ratification. Uh, first, there was the incredible movement at the state level. By 1919, all but 10 states had recognized some form of women's suffrage. Next, there was the march on the White House in 1913, uh, which helped change President Wilson's mind. And then there was World War I, this war for democracy and the promise of equal rights for all around the globe. What would you like our listeners to know about what forces were crystallizing, what ideas were crystallizing in 1920 that helped bring the 19th Amendment over the edge and made it part of the Constitution? I think what I would um, emphasize is the incredibly diverse range of activists who were striving for equality on so many fronts. Um, I'm thinking in particular about the Black Women's Club movement, about um, uh, the Women's Christian Temperance Union, about um, all of the sort of broad range of women's 
organizations that um, tirelessly and worked over and over again to get this to take place. So, you know, obviously over time you have to change people's minds in positions of power. Um, and people tried so many different ways to change their minds. Um, I'd like to address Riva's previous point a little bit because um, one of the things that I found in my research on the 14th and 15th Amendments was that... Um, uh, congressman trying to argue for enfranchising African-American men claimed that because they were no longer enslaved in the South and therefore no longer dependents of other men's households, they were instead heads of their own household. They needed the right to vote in order to represent their own families and that that was a really powerful um, argument for for their um, enfranchisement. But I think what, um, to come circle back to your question, if I can, I, I think um, what I hold on to is just how much work it took by so many different groups of people, working class women who um, incorporated the right to vote in their demands for workers' justice, um, Asian American women who marched in parades in the suffrage movement, African American women who refused to accept the uh, racism of the, of the white suffragists and um, fought for the right to vote um, in their own ways and own organizations and alongside and with um, white activists. It, it's a, it's a, it's a, a, a collective movement that takes a, a lot of effort, I would say, kind of all hands on deck. Reva, please highlight any large ideas or movements that you think were especially important around 1920 and the ratification of the amendment, and then describe to us how it was received legally. You have written that the Supreme Court briefly took into account the debates surrounding the 19th Amendment and how at the crux of ratification, women were constitutional rights holders, but the court soon lost sight of those arguments in interpreting the 19th Amendment as well as other parts of the Constitution. The first I want to say, just um, adding to what Laura has observed, is that for a constitutional amendment to be ratified, a movement that has been uh, led by a few fierce believers has to expand to a broad-based coalition. And for that to work, the Americans who mobilize to seek to change the law have to understand why the vote matters to them. And so the stories about enfranchising women multiply and diversify in this period in a really wonderful way as people begin to explain why, you know, why votes for women will make a difference in their lives. And so the issue is both the issue of principle and equal respect, liberty and equality for all, but it also is pragmatic and a story about empowerment as movement, as people mobilize and explain to one another how voting will enable them to take possession of the law and make the worlds they live in better for themselves and their families. And so the narrative of enfranchisement becomes richer and richer and richer as it weaves in the life adventures and experiences and injuries and hopes and aspirations of more and more and more Americans. That's one of the things that's really beautiful about reading the stories of the suffrage uh, movement in this early 20th century period. From the standpoint of updating you a bit on the themes that I introduced earlier about uh, votes for women and the family, 
I least want to bring to people's attention that the ways in which women began to talk about how the vote would um, allow women to get equal respect for themselves as mothers and caregivers and equal um, uh, support for their families began to evolve over the decades in ways that are really quite striking. So if in the earlier period, there was a lot of focus by a smaller cadre of leaders in the universe of, or talk of equal rights and equal property rights, although there was striking talk about a married woman's right to a share of the family assets in virtue of her contribution to the family's economy and her caregiving work and notions of voluntary motherhood, a wife's right to say no to sex, by the turn of the century, Women are talking in really remarkable ways about women's ability and their right and through law to participate beyond the home in ways that um, contemplate women acting as wage earners and their needs as wage earners. So, for example, Mary Church Terrell is, and the club women are talking about childcare for the first time. There is, at the time of suffrage, uh, the proposal for Shepherd Town or in the first, first healthcare bills are proposed. So there's a transformation of the conception of the public sphere that's going on because as women imagine themselves as participants in the public sphere, they bring concerns of caregivers and of families' needs into the public sphere in ways that transform the idea of what law ought to be doing for American citizens in a really dramatic sort of way. Laura, it's August 1919. The 19th Amendment has been ratified. What happens next? What are the broad themes that the women's suffrage movement embraces, uh, including uh, beginning to debate a broader text of an equal rights amendment? Yeah, you know, it's really interesting because in the 19th century, starting in the 1840s, the women's rights movement had very broad goals, um, with equal access to education, equal pay for equal work, um, uh, many, many wide ranging kinds of goals that um, didn't necessarily focus exclusively on the vote. But because the politics in um, and around the Civil War era zoom in on the ballot, that becomes the sole focus of, of the movement for a very long time. So as soon as the 19th Amendment is ratified, women's rights activists have to look around and say, okay, what did we leave off of the table that we now need to um, continue to think about? So, um, you know, continued access to higher education was was a key thing that people wanted. Um, likewise, uh, as as Riva suggested, childcare, um, workers' rights, uh, there the the sort of movement for a, a broader conceptualization of equality um, that's not necessarily grounded in political citizenship, but is in, is grounded in um, a conception of uh, who's valued in society and whose interests are cared for and um, paid attention to. Reva, tell us about the reception of the 19th Amendment in the courts. You've written that in the Atkins and Children's Hospital opinion, the court approached the 19th Amendment as embodying a sex equality norm that had implications for constitutional questions other than voting. Atkins discussed equality for women, you write, in the framework of suffrage debates as emancipation from the traditions of reasoning about gender embodied in the common law of marital status but the court then repudiated that reasoning in the 1930s, and the 19th Amendment analysis seemed to drop out of constitutional interpretation. Uh, tell us more about that important dynamic. So there's a striking feature 
of the 19th Amendment. It's, uh, so we heard from Laura that the 14th Amendment includes sex in an exclusionary sort of way because it's defining suffrage with respect to men in the second clause of the 14th Amendment, whereas the 19th Amendment is introducing a sex equality principle of a kind into the Constitution um, in the sense that it is saying that the right of citizens of the United States to vote shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or any state on account of sex. So that's telling us that it's not right to exclude on account of sex, although I think Laura and I might have written the text otherwise. That's the one we have in the Constitution. Um, and the question is, is that only a non-discrimination principle with respect to voting, or does it have any broader reference or, or, or bearing on other practices? And if you listen to the way in which I described the arguments over the vote, um, you'll see that from the beginning, it was an argument around the family. It was, I mean, really before the Civil War. From the beginning, there was always a sense that this would radically transform the family, from the anti-suffragist perspective, that was bad. From the those who sought equal suffrage, that was a good thing. But whichever way you saw it, there was a connection between the two. So while we see this naked text as only having one subject matter concern, the participants in the debate understood it to range much more broadly in its reference. And a question arises when this amendment is ratified, will those who enforce it see it as bearing on other contexts other than voting simply, as political equality simply? And even if it applies to voting only, will it only apply at the ballot booth? Will it pertain to office holding? Might it pertain to jury service? How far will this non-discrimination principle apply? And what I've observed is that in the early years after ratification, there's some uncertainty about range of reference. And the Adkins case, which we discuss or you raise, um, is one in which a question arose concerning legislation that actually regulated or, um, in the eyes of many, uh, protected working women with respect to their um, wages. And uh, the court struck that law down. It was sex discriminatory in part because the court itself in the earlier Lochner case had barred similar wage-based regulation for men, but had allowed in the mother case regulation of women. So the court essentially authorized sex discriminatory regulation. And in Adkins, after the ratification of the 19th Amendment, it briefly suggested that even in regulating work, the 19th Amendment might have changed the constitutional rule in some way. And, and without my going into the long, complicated politics behind the Adkins decision, what's significant for our purposes is at least that the court talked about the 19th Amendment's ratification as if it had some application beyond the act of voting itself. I'll note that in the Raddus case, only a year later, the court talked about similar kinds of protective labor legislation and never mentioned the 19th Amendment. So there's some argument that the vote, the justices involved may have just been hostile to minimum wages laws for women. But um, putting all of that aside um, and getting back to our main point here and not getting too far into the case law, I want to emphasize the crucial point that um, this question of whether the 19th Amendment would apply beyond the act of voting um, was one that over time sort of 
fell away and it began to be read as a rule <laughs> that had very limited application. As if after a campaign that at many junctures ranged and drew into question many kinds of laws in many kinds of settings and the justice of many kinds of social arrangements, but very shortly there, and, and, and I want to say by opponents of the amendment, they were the first to say that giving women the vote would change all of these other sets of social arrangements. But after ratification of the 19th Amendment, very shortly, the court began to read the amendment as narrowly as possible, as only bearing on one topic and having very little extension. Uh, Paula Monopoly has a book coming out where she gives some reasons why this might be so. Um, and one of them may be tied back to race, um, namely that the women's movement itself, in particular, uh, I, I would say that um, Alice Paul, I'll say it was not the whole women's movement because the women's movement was divided, but at least an important wing of the women's movement was focused on ratification of the ERA and so was interested in appeasing states uh, that were opposed to enfranchising African-American women and didn't press enforcement issues. So she has an interesting thesis as to why there was narrow construction. There's entanglement of the ERA, excuse me, of the 19th Amendment and race almost at every juncture of its, its life. Fascinating. Laura uh, Riva mentioned the ERA. It was first proposed by the National Women's Political Party in 1923. It wasn't until the 1960s that the revival of feminism spurred its uh, introduction in Congress, got a two-thirds vote from the House of Representatives in October 71, and was approved by the Senate in 1972. Uh, tell us about the revival of the ERA. What was it in particular that revived it? And the ideas surrounding the debate around the ERA especially around 1970, which, after all, was the 50th anniversary of the 19th Amendment. Well, I, th I think the revival of it was certainly driven by um, the feminist movement in that time period, women who were fighting for um, gender justice on all fronts um, uh, pushed this this movement and um, revived it in, in Congress. And there seemed to be um, some openness to it. Uh, as we know, it, it fell short of ratification. Uh, I have a particularly personal connection to this. My mother was a lobbyist for the ERA in Indiana. And I remember going to the courthouse with her as a very small child um, to talk to uh, local legislators. And Indiana was the last date to ratify it before its current revival. So um, I, I think it, it, it was really due to this sort of national changing mood around women's equality that was um, coming out of the civil rights era and out of the feminist movement. Riva, you've noted that in 1970, at the strike memorializing the half century of women's suffrage, there were some elements that people were arguing for that were embodied in the law today, others that were not, and the movement sought and almost secured federal universal child care legislation. Tell us more about the politics and the constitutional goals in 1970 at the time of the 50th anniversary. So I'm going to try to locate um, the half century anniversary of the 19th Amendment August 26, 1970, basically 50 years ago from where we are this week, um, uh, against this longer history uh, so that our readers can appreciate really how profoundly intergenerational this understanding of uh, the suffrage movement and of votes for women 
was in tying equal citizenship to a transformation of the way we organize our family and our public lives. So um, here's, here's the big, big picture. Um, we know that at the, the moment of ratification, uh, there is at least some wing of the movement that wants an ERA, others don't. Strikingly, women are divided by class and circumstance in their um, entanglement in care and motherhood and their vulnerability to a non-discrimination rule. I can't get into the details of it, but much of that changes by 1970, in part because our, our federal civil rights laws even strike down these protective labor legislation. And um, the mobilization that happens at the time of the half century anniversary is on the same themes that have been brought by the women's movement in the preceding half century, namely that women should be able to equally participate in public and private life. Um, the kinds of themes that Crystal Eastman had raised in 1920, the strike is raising, um, the women's strike is raising in 1970 as well. What do the women say when they want to memorialize the half century anniversary of the 19th Amendment? They demand an equal rights amendment and they seek equal opportunity in education, in employment, and also access to abortion, and also access to round the clock childcare. Forgotten this round the clock childcare demand. So, what they're basically saying is equal membership is a transformation in the conditions in which women raise and bear children. And this childcare demand is a core part of the mobilization. There were babians at this march. There was a real effort to emphasize the importance of transforming the conditions of caregiving as being a critical element uh, in the ways that. Uh, equality would be achieved. Eleanor Holmes Norton said that my mandate to enforce any sex discrimination law will be an empty, hollow promise unless we can change the conditions of childcare. And what we know is that law changes in this period. Within a certain number of years, large number like 30 states ratify an equal rights amendment. We know that Employment discrimination law begins to be enforced by the EEOC on grounds of sex discrimination for the first time. The court for the first time begins to strike down laws that discriminate on the basis of sex. First time in the Equal Protection Clause's history, 100 years after ratification of the 14th Amendment, responsive interpretation and the court begins to be moved. But what happens with the child care issue? There is response. Both houses of Congress enact universal childcare bill, but in 1971, Nixon vetoes that bill. Same thing happens in 1976. Both houses of Congress send it to the president for signature and President Ford vetoes that bill. So what you actually see, and which is much forgotten in this moment of the second mobilization, is this demand to change the conditions of family and public life so that equality has a meaningful chance of essentially altering all caregivers' lives as well. Thank you for reminding us of that important connection between the fight for universal child care and the sex equality cases of the 1970s. Of course, that raises the path-breaking contribution of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. 
I'm thrilled, we the people listeners, that on September 17th, the National Constitution Center will award the 2020 Liberty Medal to Justice Ginsburg. And we're going to broadcast an amazing video of personal tributes in music and song, including performances by her favorite opera singers to make the evening especially meaningful. I hope you'll tune in. Laura, despite Justice Ginsburg's advocacy in the 1970s, working women were divided throughout the 20th century about whether or not an equal rights amendment should be supported. Tell us about that important split. Well, it was a really interesting problem that working women faced. Um, should they support the Equal Rights Amendment or not? Because it could have the potential to strike down any protective legislation that was being created in order to improve the workplace situations for working women. So some working women advocated for those kinds of laws that would um, create safer workspaces for women to work in. But others opposed it because they were afraid that it, those kinds kinds of protective laws would restrict the hours that they could work, would um, limit the, their, their ability to compete on an equal playing field with men So in, in the workplace. So I think a lot of um, working class women's perspective on the ERA was grounded in whether or not they felt it could improve their labor conditions throughout the 20th century. Reva, on the Interactive Constitution's explainer about the 19th Amendment, our scholars, Nancy Gertner and Gail Harriet, note that you have made a centrally important argument that today questions involving the 14th Amendment's guarantee of equal protection of the law should be interpreted in light of the 19th Amendment's prohibition against discrimination on the basis of sex. Tell us more about that extremely important argument and what some of its implications would be if the court were to adopt it. Okay, great. Thanks for that, Jeffrey. Um, so... Uh, we can think about the Constitution as just a writing, a piece of separate clauses, or we can think of it as a document that is the accretion of a long historical journey that the nation has been on. Um, and I'm going to look at it as the latter. Um, that is, that each amendment builds on the experience and the history of the prior amendments. And so rather than just read the 19th Amendment standing alone as if it has no connection to any of the preceding amendments, we can think about the conversation that we just had today and see that the debate over votes for women, the debate over suffrage actually begins before the 13th Amendment and winds its way all the way through the various Reconstruction Amendments as advocates and the nation evolve in their understanding about the conditions and the um, uh, norms that would support women's inclusion in the polity as full and equal members. And what is the significance for that in terms of how it is we interpret the Constitution? When we go to enforce the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause, rather than only looking at it standing alone or looking at the history up until the Civil War, we can read the 14th Amendment together with the 19th Amendment and let the history in its full extent inform the ways we interpret equal protection. So this is sometimes called synthetic interpretation. Rather than reading the Constitution snipped into little bits, we're going to read the two clauses together, if we consider them as pieces of text, and we're going to read the document and the history cumulatively over two centuries in trying to understand its significance. Now, why should that matter in the way that we understand the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause? Well, the history that we've just considered, we could consider as providing us both 
negative precedent and positive precedent. What do I mean by negative precedent? It can tell us about great wrongs in our past. So just as much as slavery and segregation are negative precedent, they are things that the nation has, they are not things, they are long-standing arrangements and practices and regimes that as a country we've engaged in, which we now consider ourselves wrong, which we define ourselves against, and we try to transform and transcend, so too a regime of male-only suffrage. We need to recognize that in the ways that we interpret and enforce the 14th Amendment and understanding this history can help us recognize and guide us in repudiating vestiges of the older regime that we're repudiating. It's also positive precedent. It supplies us with endless, countless stories of constitution makers who were forward-thinking, understand, committed to democracy, and envisioned a regime, a, a polity made of universal suffrage generations before their time. And the fact that the nation wasn't ready for what it was that they advocated don't mean that they're any less worthy of our esteem, respect, and adulation. And so we can include in our constitutional histories the many, many, many women who spoke on behalf of suffrage. The particular context in which I would include these stories in United, in United States against Virginia, Justice Ginsburg, whom you mentioned, sets out the framework for understanding how to enforce the Equal Protection Clause. And she tells us that the clause forbids sex classifications, she says, may not be used as they once were to create or perpetuate the legal, social, and economic inferiority of women. And so with that understanding, which points us to the past, we know to look back at the, the world of past wrongs. It teaches us about the ways family was used to exclude and subordinate and make women less than full members. And it teaches us to organize family in ways that no longer perpetuate that understanding of things. And similarly, she points us to the history of mobilization for change in that opinion and will lead us to the variety of activists that we talked about, Crystal Eastman, Mary Church Terrell, um, many others, uh, Watkins, uh, Harper, and others who are as deserving of our respect and esteem, for example, as is Frederick Douglass. Thank you very much for that. And we, the people listeners, please learn more about Reva Siegel's important arguments about interpreting the 14th Amendment in light of the 19th on the interactive Constitution. Well, it's time for closing arguments in this remarkably rich, rigorous, and illuminating discussion of the 19th Amendment. And uh, Laura, the first one is to you, and I'm going to ask the obvious, on the 100th anniversary of its ratification, why is the 19th Amendment important, and why should our listeners care about it? Well, I think what this anniversary is doing is it's giving us an opportunity to revisit the history of how the, the amendment was ratified and sort of examine it in the new light um, and set aside an older model of the story that centers the white women leaders and instead looks at the broader range of people involved in the movement and the, the large numbers of communities and um, activists who fought for this ballot. And I, I'm, I'm really heartened 
important to see how many um, things I'm seeing that are, are revisiting that history. And I think, I think that's so important. Um, I also think it's really essential that we recognize at this moment that the 19th Amendment did not mean that all people, um, all women could vote everywhere. It was a step. It was not the end point. We know that um, Chinese Americans are excluded. We know that Native Americans are excluded. We know that African Americans are not um, secure in their right to vote until the um, 1965 Voting Rights Act. And we know that um, even today, our voting rights are um, not necessarily secure. And I think this gives us a chance to think about that and to have, have really rich and important conversations ab about um, ab the meaning of the vote and the significance of the vote in, in America. Thank you so much for that. And Reva, the last word is to you. On the 100th anniversary of its ratification, why is the 19th Amendment important and why should our listeners care about it? So the place that I would take this as a bottom line goes to the question of who makes the Constitution, who makes law in this country. When we're in school, we learn about a very few revered figures who are responsible for drafting and shaping the Constitution. And what this centennial has taught us is that the universe of Constitution makers is larger, more diverse, and includes women in ways that we very rarely consider. And I, I'd like to close our conversation today uh, with the words of uh, Francis Ellen Watkins Harper in 1866, who talked about the meaning of the 14th Amendment in terms that wouldn't make it into the actual formal legal understanding of the amendment, but actually foresee the best understanding of the American democratic project. She talked about the fact that, quote, we're all bound up together in one great bundle of humanity and society cannot trample on the weakest and feeblest of its members without receiving a curse in its own soul. She talked about the fact that the nation, as she best saw it at the intersection of liberty and equality, we quote, have no privileged class trampling upon and outraging the unprivileged classes but will then be one great privileged nation. So she's trying to envision the law, the equal protection of the law as bringing us together as a one, as a unity. And she's doing it in a way that perhaps reached beyond what her own peers were capable of embracing, but put forward a beacon for us as a nation. And the fact that she wasn't able to move her own contemporaries doesn't mean she shouldn't guide us today as a goal for our own constitutional understandings. Both the Constitution as embodied in the 14th Amendment, the 15th Amendment, the 19th Amendment, and any more bodies of text we should forge. Thank you so much, Reva Siegel and Laura Free, for an inspiring discussion of the 100th anniversary of the 19th Amendment and for helping us understand how its ratification has helped and can help us to become, as you quoted, Riva, one great privileged nation. Uh, we the People listeners learn more about this important anniversary online at our Women in the Constitution page. And please join me in thanking Riva Siegel and Laura Free. Riva, Laura, thank you so much for joining. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you, Laura. Thank you, Riva. Today's show was engineered by Greg Sheckler and produced by Jackie McDermott. Research was provided by Grace Zandi, Jackie McDermott, and Lana Ulrich. The homework of the week 
there's so much with the people friends and it's so rich check out our resources page for the new interactives that the constitution center has launched about the 19th amendment the drafting table to explore early drafts an audio of the debates in congress and the state-by-state map of recognition of the right to women's suffrage and then Tune in to the video of Resolve, this amazing new song cycle of original texts of the 19th Amendment that we launched on August 26th. And please join us on September 17th when we award the 2020 Liberty Medal to Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. In addition to all that, please rate, review, and subscribe to We the People on Apple Podcasts and recommend the show to friends, colleagues, or anyone anywhere who is hungry for a weekly dose of constitutional debate. And remember, the National Constitution Center is, and always will be, a private nonprofit. We rely on the generosity of people from around the country who are inspired by our nonpartisan mission of constitutional education and debate and lifelong learning. You can support our mission by becoming a member at constitutioncenter.org forward slash membership or give a donation of any amount to support our work, including this podcast, at constitutioncenter.org forward slash donate. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, happy anniversary 19th Amendment. I'm Jeffrey Rosen.